0: this episode of AvTalk, updates on the aviation situation in Ukraine. Plus, Airbus goes big with an A380 flying testbed for hydrogen propulsion. Hello, and welcome to episode 152 of AvTalk. I am
1: Ian Pechnik, here as always with – Jason Rabinowitz. Hello. Ian, how are you on this 152nd meeting of our voices? I am I am I'm well how are you sir I'm good thank you,
0: you make it, it's, it's like the the intro to a sporting event you 150 second
1: annual when when, when, when,
0: annual yeah, when, when teams have been when teams have been going 150 second annual that would be that would be something can you imagine having followed like if you had been in your late teens in so if you've been born in like 1900 can you imagine having, you know, gotten into aviation, say you, you know, you lived somewhere where the Wright brothers were in the newspaper on a regular basis and then you followed aviation and by the time you're in your late 60s we land a man on the moon and then say you live into your, you know, your 70s and you can fly in a 747. That's something, all right? That had to have been just an amazing kind of. If, if you were into aviation at that point and had lived that life,
1: that would be incredible. Yeah, we don't exactly have anything as dramatic as that, but planes are still nice. Planes are still. I mean, nice in and, our lifetime, we'll nothing. About plenty of those. <laughs> yeah, nothing dramatic like that has happened. But planes have gotten bigger and they've gotten smaller
0: that's true and and later in the episode they could be powered by different things we'll get to that shortly let's start with an update on the situation in ukraine last week we talked about some of the airlines that were pulling back service or canceling service in into and out of Ukraine, that list grew over the past week, with Lufthansa Group, so Lufthansa, Swiss, and Austrian Airlines joining the list, as well as SAS and Air France. So those airlines have canceled their flights to airports other than Lviv, which is in the far western, uh, southwestern portion of of Ukraine, and those flights have continued, but. We're starting to see some airports NOTAM closed. Kharkiv is now closed overnight, the NOTAM says. This is Wednesday, February 23rd. It's closed until 6.30 in the morning uh, UTC, so 8.30 in the morning local time. It doesn't affect any flights, but I'm not sure why you would NOTAM an airport closed. If you didn't think something was going to happen, so by the time the podcast comes out on Friday morning, it could be very clear why the airport decided that they were going to close their runway overnight. I hope that's not the case. Maybe uh, it's just for routine still? maintenance,
1: patching sure. up potholes or, or, sure. or clearing off the rubber from the uh, thresholds.
0: Yeah, but we'll we'll see where that that leads us. The most tracked flights all week. On flight radar 24 have been over Ukraine. We briefly had the the most tracked flight for the numerically significant Lufthansa flight Toulouse on 22 to 22, that that was fun for a moment. But other than that, it's all been flights over Ukraine, especially a lot of the ISR flights by the US Air Force, the Royal Air Force out of the UK, as well as uh, some NATO Aircraft. So those have been followed at this point. I want to say religiously by a lot of people. And I'm sure that a lot of the listeners on this podcast have have been following those as well. And those continue to be active as of now. So we'll see how how things change by Friday. And if you're listening to the podcast on Friday, this information could all be very very well moot. But hopefully hopefully not.
1: Yeah, well, as we speak right now, the number one and two most tracked flights are both the the U.S. drones over Ukraine, uh, for a total. Wow, uh, uh, more than a one hundred and one thousand people watching both of those right now. That's quite impressive. And and you didn't even put out a push alert or anything. This is just.
0: No, this is all watching. This is all people watching. Yeah.
1: And Those are the only two drones we're allowed to see. I'm sure there are more up there right now that may be not broadcasting, but a lot going on.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, we, we can talk about that for for a second. We've gotten a lot of questions this week about, is this something that we should be seeing? And My answer and, and the answer is that these flights are visible because they choose to be. These aircraft are broadcasting. In the case of the the two U.S. Air Force RQ fours, they're broadcasting Mode S, not ADSB. So we're using MLAT to track those, and we've talked about that in the past. Without getting into too much detail in in this time around, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to a, a detailed blog post that we have uh, if you want to learn more about that. But the short answer is that multiple receivers time how long the signal from the aircraft takes to get to that receiver and then we're able to calculate the position of the aircraft based on how long the the signal takes to get to a receiver that we know the position of so then the Latitude and longitude basically are, are able to be calculated for the aircraft and then displayed as the track. Right, um,
1: because but- these aircraft are operating at such a high altitude, I'm sure they're pinging a lot of receivers at any given time. One is operating at 51,000 feet, the other was at 54,000 feet. So there's quite good coverage on these where it, it naturally looks like regular ADSP tracking.
0: Yeah, and it, the other. I guess small thing that makes these easier to track with them is that they fly slow. They're not flying Mach point eight point nine. You know, looking at the ground speed, sometimes it's hundred and fifty. 200 knots, so more akin to a, a a decent turboprop rather than you know a, a commercial passenger aircraft. So that helps kind of uh, make things a bit easier to track. But these are visible because they they choose to be. Certainly, there are aircraft that choose not to be visible by turning off their transponder and or, or broadcasting a, a signal that's not ADSB or, or Mode S that we don't have the ability to track. So certainly, the, these aircraft are announcing their presence.
1: I like the way that you put that. They they are trackable because they choose to be trackable, as if the aircraft itself is sentient and it it has turned on a switch. But uh, it is a very intentional (laughs) thing by the US military. (laughs) Somebody has pushed a button to make the drone transmit that. It has not decided on its own, I want to be tracked publicly.
0: We don't know that. Not
1: yet. Mm, You don't know? I hope not.
0: Ah, now see, now we've opened up a whole different can of worms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's the the current situation as of now. Roughly three hundred and fifty to four hundred flights a day are using Ukrainian airspace. Uh, about three hundred flights in and out of Ukraine. Uh, about fifty overflights. If Ukrainian airspace is closed, those flights obviously can't. Access the the country. The question becomes: Where do the the aircraft used by Ukrainian airlines go? One conversation that Jason and I were having, and, and that I've had with some other people, is: Does the AN two two five move? Do they relocate that aircraft? It's it's currently at 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 Hostomel outside Kyiv. So do they move that aircraft? And the other thing is: What happens to the to the aircraft by U- Ukrainian airlines? There are a number of routes from to and from destinations between Russia and south of Ukraine starting kind of at Turkey uh, which is just across the Black Sea and then moving south to to kind of some leisure destinations that non-russian registered aircraft use so turkish airlines being one of them and some other airlines use so those flight routes would be become unavailable and then there's also the question of what aircraft are, are allowed or would continue to use Ukrainian airspace by choice? Uh, so that would be uh, you know, kind of one of the other things that we're looking at.
1: Yeah, very fluid situation. Hopefully, by the time this podcast comes out, nothing has changed or it has de escalated. But uh, stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, stay
0: tuned. Let's go a very different direction and talk about. Airbus's big announcement, or I I suppose I should say Airbus and CFM's big announcement this week, which was a hydrogen demonstration platform using Airbus's first A380. They will mount a CFM passport engine on the aft fuselage of MSN-001. They will put hydrogen tanks inside the A380 and use that as a hydrogen propulsion demonstrator.
1: Yes, this is this is good. Regardless of what your opinion on hydrogen-powered uh, aircraft is in the future, whether it's a good idea or bad or not, or, or even plausible, I am extremely excited to see an A380 have a uh, experimental. Propulsion and engine system attached to the outside of it. It's very exciting. Gives new life to uh, the A380 and an aircraft that had a very uncertain future. I'm very excited whether or not I, I think hydrogen is a, a plausible propulsion system for the future. I'm very excited to see what Airbus does with it.
0: So we've talked about aircraft. That have done this before, not the hydrogen part, but mounted an engine on the fuselage before. We've talked about Honeywell's 757. We actually talked with Joe Duvall way back when. He was, I think, one of our, our first interviews on the podcast. A pilot of Honeywell aircraft, and and he he flies the the Honeywell 757 on a regular basis. GE has their flying test bed, but that usually or, or always gets mounted on under the wing. But Rolls Royce has their 747 that also has, and I believe it's a 747SP that has a fuselage-mounted engine mount, so that they can they can test Rolls Royce smaller smaller Rolls Royce engines. So this isn't a new concept using the A380 and using that's hydrogen. The new concept. However, that's the new concept, and so that's going to be. The I'm coming round to the the idea that hydrogen is actually going. It's actually going to serve certainly a segment. Whether or not it's it's the large transport segment, eventually that that's going to be an interesting thing to see. And and that I'm still not entirely convinced on. But the engine itself, uh, CFM put out a like a. I want to call it a 3D rendering video, I guess. How they take basically they 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 take apart the engine, they show you the innards, and then they put it all back together. And it's like a one-minute video, and they posted it on Twitter and and various other places. I tell you, I watched that thing a dozen times. Oh,
1: yeah. Everything about more, this. Is, more than a dozen times. Everything about this is extremely rewatchable. So Airbus says the program's objective is not to see if they can adapt the A380 to hydrogen, but it's more about to prove the effectiveness of, of ground and flight testing using a direct combustion engine fueled by hydrogen in preparation for Airbus's larger scheme of putting in uh, hydrogen powered zero emission, I'm air quoting there, aircraft in service by uh, 2035. Uh, the demonstration will use this A380 equipped with liquid hydrogen tanks. There are going to be four towards the aft of the aircraft. The tanks themselves will be prepared at airbus facilities in both France and Germany. So I guess uh, plane spotters on both ends of the of uh, the Airbus facilities will be able to see this. And I do believe they say this will be flying by the middle of this decade. So that could be a couple of years from now, still. No real firm date on that, as far as I can see. But this is really exciting. And they're using the A380 just because it's large enough to put these hydrogen tanks in. It has four very worthy engines to aid in the, the flight testing. I guess uh, it can. Really, not be that affected by bolting on uh, this this test engine to the outside, but this is very exciting stuff.
0: So, two things here. One, I think the A three hundred and eighty is a fascinating thing. I mean, it, of course, it's, it it'll be affected somehow, but I'm, I'm sure they'll they'll compensate for it. I mean, if they can do it to a seven five seven, why not an A three hundred and eighty? But the difference when looking at the renderings, and and we'll put a link to you know the renderings and all all that good fun stuff in the show notes, so that everyone can kind of Follow along visually with what we're talking about, but they're mounting it to the aft fuselage, wh- yeah. which is all two other aircraft that I know about. And, and if I'm missing one, let me know at podcast at fr uh, If I'm missing any of the engine test beds where they've mounted an engine to the side of the fuselage, but the other two, the seven five seven and the Rolls Royce seven four seven, they have the engine mounted on the forward fuselage ahead of the wing. So the the Passport engine is not huge; uh, it, it's CFR- comparatively was- tiny. Yeah. I mean, compared to the Trent 900s that it's got on it. It's used for, let's see, it's up to 20,000 pounds of thrust. It's a business jet engine and I'm trying to grab real quick to see which aircraft it's been fitted to. Um, that's a really good question.
1: Because why do I, why do I
0: feel like the to, Honda Jet comes to mind? That could be. But the one of the interesting things is the Engine itself is not that large, so we're not talking about this this huge engine. We're we're talking about something that that's much smaller. Powered the the global seventy five hundred, the Bombardier uh,
1: long range business jet. So uh-huh. it's it's not huge, but it's also not tiny. But Airbus has provided some information about why they have put the engine at the rear of the aircraft. And I quote, it will be mounted along the rear fuselage of the flying testbed to allow engine emissions, including contrails, to be monitored separately from those of the engines powering the aircraft. You would think that putting it forward of the existing engines would make that easier, but I'm sure Airbus and <laughs> GE know what they're doing. Well, so that is interesting. I. I Saw that mentioned and then had promptly
0: forgot about it. But thank you for bringing that up again. That'll be really interesting to see what they do. I don't have official information on this, but what I'm assuming they will do is fly the DLR sniffer plane behind it, mm. uh, which is the the German Aerospace Research Engineering Lab, and they have an aircraft that is set up to basically sniff another airplane's exhaust and fly close enough where they can get readings we talked about this oh I don't know maybe a hundred episodes ago when NASA's dc8 was in Europe and they were doing these follow-on tests they were flying one after the other and the the DLR plane was flying around so that'll be interesting to to see and, and I mean we're talking about the promise of zero emissions hopefully that, that they're like oh yeah zero emissions great done
1: yeah, again, this really puts to test the, the engine itself and the emissions. It doesn't really seek to answer questions about the actual production of hydrogen, or, or I guess it will, the, the storage of hydrogen. But there's still a lot of unanswered questions about the, the actual sustainability of hydrogen, uh, the production of hydrogen. But this is a, obviously a very large piece of the puzzle.
0: In September, when we were in, in Toulouse, Airbus said, "By 2035, we're going to fly a, a hydrogen-powered aircraft." And they seemed very earnest that that was their timeline. Does that timeline falter? Probably, as with any aerospace undertaking, but it's good to see that they're going to have something in the air at least testing the beginnings of, of something in a couple years. But I tell you what, I want to see this thing fly.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, if anyone at Airbus is listening, I would very much like to be there when this thing takes off for the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So we both did a little TV watching over the weekend, beginning of the week. And we got a, uh, someone wrote us on Twitter and said, hey, what did you guys think of Downfall? The Netflix documentary on the Seven three Seven Max, and Jason, you watched over the weekend. I watched it
1: last night. What did you think of it, sir? <sighs> I mean honestly that there's not much new information that i I gained from watching this documentary, except for you know a, a renewed feeling of of just anger that this was allowed to happen, and that no one has really faced any. Legitimate consequences, and we're, we're not exactly in the same position where we were with, with the issues at Boeing. But we have, have not come nearly as far as we probably all would have hoped. But for anyone who who maybe isn't super into this industry and doesn't know all of the, the nitty gritty detail of, of what happened with the Max, it is a very eye opening look, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm in a very similar kind of a, a very similar vein. I think that if you've been a long-time listener to the podcast if you've been following this from the beginning there weren't any real surprises it lays everything out I, I think in a in a very straightforward manner i thought it was well done the crafting of the story the way they did it that said if you haven't been following it or if you're you know if you recently started listening to the podcast the way it Is portrayed and the the information that that comes out, I I think is is certainly eye opening. And and like Jason, I I I, yeah, I came away with a a renewed sense of anger. One of the things that that I thought it did well though was lay out the kind of the cultural push that took place in Boeing. After the McDonnell Douglas merger, or or kind of at the the genesis of the McDonnell Douglas merger, and, and as Boeing turned into basically what McDonnell Douglas was. The long and the short of it is that Boeing was an engineering first company, and then became a a financial company that happened to do engineering. And this was kind of you know the the gist of. Peter Robinson's book, uh, *Flying Blind*, along the similar lines, but it gets into much more. The book gets into much more detail, obviously, because it's it's longer than a film. That you know how that all occurred, but I thought they laid
1: it out quite well. Yeah, that's a good point. That the documentary isn't just solely about the Max; it's about the the decades long story that ended up with the tragedy of, of the Max and that and the the subsequent grounding. That yeah, the the how the corporate culture went from engineering first do the right thing if there's an issue go fix it to basically how do we appease wall street and, and eke out the highest level of dividends to our shareholders above and beyond anything and and really more than anything else it's really kind of an indictment on our economy as as a whole just really maximizing profits more than anything else and I've talked with some other people, and I, I think that's really the why nobody has faced legitimate consequences from this, because if you prosecute somebody at Boeing over what has happened with these crashes, you're, you're kind of indicting the entire American economy, because every company is doing what's best for their bottom line at the end of the day. Um, so I, I don't know. Again, the whole thing just kind of made me angry all over again.
0: Yeah, but I, I think one of the other takeaways here. Is kind of knowing what we know now about what's happening at the FAA. Seeing the FAA with a renewed sense of regulatory authority, especially after the the law that Congress and, and part of the documentary follows the hearings that were held in Congress that culminated in the aviation law that was passed by Congress basically reinforcing and strengthening the FAA's oversight. Now the F, that, that pendulum of Boeing walking all over the FAA has has swung very much in a different direction, where the FAA is saying, no, we're not going to certify these things that what we talked about last week with the with the FAA saying that they will retain certification on each and every 787 that rolls out uh moving forward once they are allowed to fly again so i think that's something that the documentary of course stops before we get to that part but that's kind of the i think the follow like if you want to make a sequel i think you would have to make it about the FAA its role in in the 737 Max but then also what it's doing now
1: yeah. So if you have Netflix, go ahead and watch it if the topic interests you. But eh, yeah, just mad all over again.
0: <laughs> just mad all over again. Sticking with the FAA, FAA Administrator Steve Dixon is retiring. Yeah. He's yeah. leaving the FAA two and a half years into his five year term as FAA Administrator. He is leaving, quote unquote, to spend more time with his family.
1: Yeah. I remember some people had asked him in the wake of that, did the Biden administration ask him to leave because of, uh, in part, the whole C-band fiasco, the, the 5G nonsense that's still going on. And He said apparently, uh, reportedly, no, they actually asked me to stay. So Who knows what the real deal is, but he says he wants to spend more time with his family, so, so be it. I mean, after everything that's happened, I would want to spend more time with his family too. Yeah, sure. Um, I would
0: want to spend more time with my family. Maybe not necessarily more time with his family.
1: Kind of a a real pivotal, pivotal. Wow, I I can't get that word out. But uh, pivotal, pivotal. There it is. Moment in the FAA's you know history for the administrator to be leaving since his job is not done. The administration is not really in a much better position than it was several years ago. It's on the way, but there's still a very large mountain to climb up before that can be considered a done job. But Who's next? Well, I mean, I guess that's the the big
0: question is is who's next. Dixon came up through; he was and and still is a pilot. Then he he was at Delta, and then he he came up through the FAA, and then became administrator. And so now, the, I guess the question is, becomes: Do you keep with that? kind of mold someone who has deep aviation experience? Do you go with someone who has regulatory experience in another area to be administrator? I I think that that's an interesting thing that the Biden administration is going to have
1: to answer. Well, uh, I I don't imagine they're going to appoint anyone in the immediate future, but we'll we'll keep an eye on it.
0: They may have bigger concerns
1: uh, at the moment, but yeah, it'll be
0: interesting to see who they choose.
1: The scope clause strikes again, my friend. Oh, no. What's joining uh, the Mitsubishi MRJ space jet in the graveyard of planes that will never be built? The E-175 E-2. Oh, I love the E-175. Who doesn't? It's a great plane. It is. It's, uh, It's comfortable. It's sporty. It's fun. No middle seats. What's there not no to like? But it is not dead. It is not going to join the MRJ in the the graveyard of planes of misfit airplanes that will never fly. But it probably is. I mean, they said they're going to delay it. What till twenty thirty or something? Yeah. I mean, it, if if they build it, it'll
0: something big has changed. Yes. In how pilot contracts are structured
1: to allow for that. But it it it's probably not going to happen. No, that's disappointing, but. The interesting is, there are so many E175s operating in North America. Eventually, they will need to be replaced. But I guess at this point, many of them are still well within their, their lifespan. Yeah. Um, many, yeah. I mean, they're still pumping out the E1. So it's probably a good decision to pause the E2. And maybe by the time it's really needed, we'll be on the E175 E3. Ooh, ooh hydrogen propulsion maybe.
0: Well the the H one I was gonna say they'll probably ah, be on the U seventy five yeah.
1: H H one. Well, Embraer did put out those remember exactly. from a few weeks or months ago. Yeah, they have the, pretty pictures. Yeah, pretty pictures of, of saying these are completely hypothetical, but maybe they become the E three. Well, but they they've also partnered with Vitero
0: and I forget what the engine manufacturer was on this, but for an electric aircraft. So that's to be fair, who hasn't? Well, I mean, this would be an electric aircraft with an actual purpose. You know, thinking thinking along the lines of the the ES nineteen, where you would have a small. Basically, it's a Dash eight replacement for
1: airlines like Videro, which are flying these these EAS routes. Surely, once again, I'm going to mention them again to be operated by Mesa. Fair enough let's see what else do we have in the regulatory uh,
0: regulatory area ooh we have South Korea saying yes to the Korean air Asiana merger provisionally they haven't given the the aok
1: they've given the okay okay now they got to figure out what do we need to extort from this combined airline to make it palatable to the competition exactly so that'll be something to keep an eye on but they didn't say no and that's the important thing that is important I don't think that was ever going to happen at this point. This is a merger that seems like it really does need to happen and it is a country where there is significant low-cost airline competition. So, we'll see what they have to give up. I can't imagine it's all that much, but the two combined have plenty to give. Yeah,
0: exactly. Also with plenty to give was Sir Tim Clark.
1: Oh boy. This was uh this is a who fun continues,
0: interview. <laughs> who continues to, to speak his mind. And hopefully he can come on the podcast and speak his mind. That would be great. Uh,
1: Remind me where did this interview come from?
0: We're gonna work on that one. Let's see. This was published in Airliner Ratings, I believe. Yes. Originally. But I, I'm not sure where where it originally it was published in Airliner. I'm not sure if that was the original reason for the interview or not. But it comes from Andreas Speth.
1: Yeah, so the, the gist of it is uh, as a reminder, Tim Clark is the uh, soon to be retiring president of Emirates who has nothing left to lose at this point. He has been extremely vocal about anything and everything you ask him at this point, basically. He had lots of jabs to throw at Boeing and Airbus. He was sympathetic to uh, Qatar's issues with the A350s, which is really, I think, the first time we've seen another airline executive even acknowledge that the problem is a thing. But Also that due to the obvious delays with the 777X delivery that nobody expects Boeing to actually deliver when they say it's going to deliver, they have had to look at extending the life of their existing aircraft since there's really nothing out there that comes close to the size of the 777X or the the A380. so They will have to uh, extend the life of um, getting this from the article about 120 aircraft, 80 of them, the A380 plus 40 or 50 777-300ERs. That is interesting that we will see the A380s given some new life to last maybe up to more than 15 years through the mid 2030s, kind of unexpected as other airlines are really Going out of their way to get rid of that aircraft.
0: Yeah, I mean their model is so unique. Unique. That I don't want to say that you know, to say that the normal laws of supply and demand don't apply.
1: But they kind of don't. It's almost an endless pit of demand. So they need the airplanes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his his really interesting I thought the most interesting part of the the interview was. His comments about the triple seven dash nine delivery schedule, which is basically, Boeing, he says Boeing told them that once you get the initial batch, we can't really give you any more because of the production problem, or not production problem, but production program. And Clark says, "What." Well, but we we need our airplanes. So that's going to be an interesting thing to see how quickly Emirates can get the, the 779. And then like you mentioned his comments about the the A350 paint issue with Emirates eventually down the production line for the A350, Clark basically saying, "Hey, fix the problem." Or we're not taking the planes. Yeah, if this is still a problem when we're whatever the aircraft, problem is, we will not be gone. taking those
1: aircraft. And uh, on on the triple seven nine or the triple seven X, also interesting that that Boeing has apparently also already produced twelve of those aircraft for Emirates, and they are in storage without the engines on. And because of the certification and remedial work, they they don't know when they're going to get those aircraft. And of course, the the line is that. Uh, they're not due to be certified until July 2023. and If lucky, they'll get them six months to a year later. And If it's delayed too much longer, uh, Tim Clark basically said, you can keep your aircraft. We won't need them by then.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy to me that through all of that, they would just be done with it. The other kind of – it seemed like a throwaway line too, but where he mentions the 787 having the same paint problem.
1: To a lesser degree.
0: Yeah. The 787 – and I'll quote from the interview, the 787 also has the same kind of problem, but not as bad. For example, on the wings at Etihad. So That's interesting to me because I hadn't seen that before. Had you? No,
1: but you, you can be sure. I'm going to go take a look at that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that'll be an, a very interesting thing to to see if there's a follow-up on. None of Etihad's 787s are particularly old. The uh, The Average age of their Dash nines is only four point six years, so they're they're not that old. But much like Qatar, these aircraft are flying constantly in and out of, of extreme heat, probably flying to much colder places. So I guess it would make sense if these aircraft, the composite aircrafts, are having the same issues as the A three hundred and fifty, but apparently to a lesser degree. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I'm trying to find a picture of the the upper part of the wings of a 787, but these damn things have so much wing flex. Anytime they're on the move, you (laughs) You can only see the the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) You'll
0: have to look for one kind of like a a banking. So look for departures from New York and London. Those are where you get good bank shots of departures. Air Canada wants its extra A220s after all. So they had canceled an order for A220s. They said, no, we don't need them. And Now this week, they say, uh, can we have our spot back,
1: please? I wonder how much they're going to have to pay to get their spot back or how that even works because typically yeah. – I have no idea. Yeah. Typically, especially in aircraft like the, the 220 with demand and not all that high production numbers, doesn't someone else usually slot in real quick to grab that spot and, and- – I mean, if I was somebody else, I would. Yeah. I don't know. Good for Air Canada though. It's a great, a great looking aircraft in their livery.
0: It is. It's. I mean, I haven't seen a bad looking. I take that back. The original
1: C series house livery, I was not a fan of. Um, it made I'm, the airplane look old. I'm turning around to look at my model of it, and yeah, it's kind of like it dotted in the back, and then it's just got yeah. the kind of ugly CS one hundred text on the way, on the tail. Yeah, wasn't the greatest looking for sure. No, it, it made it. It made it look old. But when you put it in an actual airline livery.
0: It looks sleek. It looks new. It looks like, yeah, that's a great airplane.
1: Yep, it, indeed it is.
0: So, uh, a few things b- before we go. One is that, and this goes back to we'll we'll tie this into the little interview portion with that Tim Clark gift, where he closes the interview by saying how that deals with the high court case. I have no idea. Uh, that, was, that was Tim Clark talking about it, the paint issues. The other thing that happened this week as far as the court case goes is that the court told Airbus to hold off on the A321neo order cancellation. So, As part of all of this dealing, Airbus had canceled Qatar's order for 50 A321neo aircraft. This week, the, the court said, hold on, let's figure this out. Everybody take a deep breath. And hold off on on making that cancellation final, because Qatar has said, Qatar Airways has said, well, you can't cancel our order, and Airbus has said, absolutely, we can't. And so now they're going to go back into court and they're going to talk about who's right, who's wrong, and, and the court will decide whether or not they can actually cancel the order or not. That'll be an interesting thing. Interesting thing to see if the court says no, you can't cancel the order, and then does they build the planes in Qatar?
1: Takes them, I guess. They'd like, probably lease them out and they would never wear Qatar livery. But this has got to be the strangest court case in which a manufacturer is saying, No, we don't want to sell to you. And we're going to go to court to make sure we don't have to sell to you. It's just a bizarre situation.
0: And and eventually we'll get to the point where everybody takes a big step back. They settle this somehow. And then Qatar in X number of years buys Y number of planes for Z billions of dollars. hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The Joby prototype
1: suffered a crash last week. That's pretty much all we know. Yeah. That's the uh, the eVTOL aircraft that's been testing out in California, I think north of San Francisco, maybe. They filed, uh, an, I believe it was an 8K with the SCC very, very quietly that, hey, we experienced a crash. Uh, nobody was hurt. The end. We don't know Anything else about what happened? Very, very actually impressed that there has not been a single leak that I have seen of, of the extent of the aircraft. We know there was uh, no no injuries. Thankfully, it's, it was not a piloted aircraft, or it was remotely piloted at least, or maybe autonomously. I, I don't really know. But all we know is that the aircraft crashed, and that could mean who knows? Maybe it, it had a traumatic crash and exploded into a million pieces, or maybe the landing gear broke a little bit. We we just don't know. Yeah but the, the things, NTSB is investigating. Yes, uh but these things happen in, in flight test programs. It was allegedly in a stage of flight testing where they were pushing it beyond its design specifications as you typically do in uh flightworthiness testing. But we we just don't know. I don't love the level of transparency here because when Airbus or or Boeing are flight testing a new aircraft, you, we see pretty much everything and they make a they they make a pretty big deal about it. But in this case, we, we still don't know anything. So stay tuned. Yeah, we know next to nothing. So let's
0: close the show. This is an interesting one, and I'm keen to hear everyone's thoughts on on this one as well. The UK's Institute of Economic Affairs is a, a think tank that came out with a, a study called The Future of Transport After COVID-19. And what they did is they looked at the, how the pandemic impacted aviation, how transport consumers purchase or, or use various modes of transport, including aviation. And they basically argue that instead of propping up airlines, instead of making aid packages available to airlines, they should have just let all of the airlines that were going to fail, fail. Oh. And been done with it. That's a
1: hell of a hot take. No. I
0: <laughs>
1: – No. <laughs> this is stupid. This is extremely stupid. Uh, I'm not going to say what I'm thinking really here, but this is one of the most monumentally stupid boneheaded studies could possibly release. Why would you put your name on this? First of all, you kind of needed the airlines out there in business to distribute the very thing that was hopefully going to end the pandemic, which would be the vaccine. really hard to distribute those without airplanes. And if you think airlines around the world are struggling to keep up with demand and stay operationally sound right now, and they are. can you imagine starting from scratch? No, oh, because that's absurd. So quote. Notwithstanding the
0: negative impact on employees, shareholders, suppliers, and so on, a natural, quote unquote, natural collapse of the aviation sector might have helped to contain the pandemic, end quote. A couple things here. And so on is doing a
1: lot heavy of lifting. heavy lifting heavy there. Heavy lifting there. No. So w- what would happen there if the airlines just went out of business and said, sorry, we're gone? Uh, what do you do with those airplanes or, or this, the highly trained Staff that operates and crews the aircraft themselves, or the dispatchers, or the people who run the airport. So none of this makes any sense. If you just don't pay attention to all of the extremely negative aspects, you know, maybe things would have been okay, probably. That was the study.
0: Yeah, their argument is that if you let all these airlines fail,
1: the virus may have spread more slowly. Okay, but spreading more slowly doesn't stop it. <laughs> they would have kept operating until a point where they would have just run out of money and got a bit out of business. But at that point, the damage is already done. You, You've I, got nothing. I'm just
0: telling you what the, the study So it, we'll put a link in the show notes to the study if you want some light reading. Well, I mean, the, the summary is not terribly lengthy, but the report itself is not short. But it, it'll be interesting to hear what everyone else has to say about this. There, there are some handy charts and graphs. so Maybe you'll find, find that interesting.
1: Yeah. Imagine so. if just one day British Airways disappeared, had to start from scratch or somebody else would have to start from scratch. What would that even look like? I, I don't know.
0: Let's leave it there. Okay. Before we say any more, we'll call this episode uh,
1: done. I'm going to go to bed.
0: That's a great idea. This has been episode 152 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubinowitz. thanks for listening.